Goodness. Hey, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Welcome to tonight's late night happy hour on what can only be considered just the calm and uh, easy going, easy breezy Monday night in America. Don't know about you. I'm chillaxed. (laughs) (laughs) I've been doing great. Um, Taking a break from my stress eating for the late night happy hour tonight. A very excited we're gonna be There's joining. There's really no reason, by the way, Brian, that you couldn't just stress eat during the show. I might not gonna I say mean, it's like, not coming. If, if you need me to vamp while you run back to the fridge, I can totally do it. The the combination, and I'm <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one, Andy. The combination, uh by the way, again, Bruce Feldman, um of Fox Sports and the Athletic, author of the new book with Ed Orgeron former USC coach is going to be joining us momentarily. Talk a little college football, talk about his new book. Um, I, I, the, the combina- you need to vamp for a second. I need to re-enter the room, so vamp away. Okay. The combination of um, leftover Halloween candy. You're looking good to me, if it makes a difference. Oh, now you're gone again. The, the combination of leftover Halloween candy and um, election stress is really uh, is proving not to be particularly good. Um, I, I had to make a decision today. My choices today, I decided, were uh, either just eating all the candy that was left or um, drinking my weight in diet cherry Pepsi. I went with the Pepsi. Um, been peeing a lot. <laughs> To let people in uh, behind the curtain. So, uh, what did it, did it fix your problem, Andy? Again, you I'm look not fine. sure. I am. What trying, was the issue? Uh, I'm trying to comment in the uh, chat room, and I'm unable to do so. Huh? I can't tell if it's a problem on my end or a problem. Uh, Don't I know. can't tell what the problem is, but uh, I'm unable to access the chat room. So I thought perhaps maybe it's uh, maybe it's it's something with that. Well, I'll see. If, I'll see what I can do. But anyway, so. Uh, we we recorded a podcast tonight, and and while we wait, we want to get into the the, the super heavy stuff uh, with uh, Bruce coming in. Um, but fun little nugget here. Hey, you we know get, what? Up, oh, uh, don't even have to. to the we'll side. save it. We can find out later in the show how much Bruce Feldman would pay to live in Derek Fisher's old house. Uh, <laughs> what's the premium he would put on that? Uh, but we don't have to do it right now. Bruce, how are you? Good to see you. I'm good. I'm trying to figure out how to get centered here. We figured I, it out for you. Don't I, worry about it. Is that better? That is better. Yeah. Um, we, we figured out this configuration is centering foolproof because we struggle with it all the time too. Like there, there will be times where I spend an entire show trying to figure out why I am six inches too far to the left and cannot fix it for the life of me. And then we figured out this configuration, you can't screw it up. It's amazing. You know, I as I got on the link, I was a little late because I may be the only person who still uses Safari. And- <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, you can't use Safari. It's no. gotten to the point, Bruce, I got to be honest, where I've forgot, I've stopped telling people that. Because um, it's like, it's the equivalent of telling people they can't get, uh, use AOL <laughs> you know, to, uh, to, to, to dial up. So, yeah, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, no Safari. Sorry yes. about that. I learned the hard way. But I'm here. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so uh, Bruce Feldman, of course, from Fox Sports uh, and The Athletic, author of the new book, Flip the Script, with Ed Orgeron, Lessons Learned on the Road to a Championship. This is your fifth book? Uh, it is, yeah. Yeah. Now a fifth book. Um, they've all been different. Uh, 
of course, but they're all been football books. And um, this one is the only one that I've done during a pandemic. So it's a little different in that regard. Well, only because you didn't write one back in 1917 or whatever it was. But no. um, well, I, I, this, there's a lot, I, you know, obviously, you know, the USC connections with, with Ed Orgeron that are, are the stuff that I know a lot of our, our viewers are, are really interested in. But one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you before we started, um, Coastal Carolina, when did that happen? <laughs> like, how? what's going on with that? You know, they, they've they been an interesting program because at one point the head coach was Joe Moglia, who had made a fortune away from football and then jumped back into it. And then the guy who took, took over the program, Jamie Chadwell, um, is a really sharp young coach. And I don't know if there's a random name that some like diehard recruiting fans would recognize Willie Korn. He was a big recruit, went to Clemson, didn't have a great career there, but Mm -hmm. uh, has really come up. You know, he and Jamie have a pretty creative offense. It's a spread, but they do different personnel groupings. And it's kind of interesting to kind of check in on him. And so, you know, my little connection to it was my old TV crew and my producer, Bo Garrett, who I worked with, who I worked with the last couple of years and Bo had come over from ESPN to Fox. Um, our TV crew kind of got split up because Joe Davis, who you guys I'm sure know, the Dodgers play by play. Um, Joe was going to stay local because I don't think the Dodgers wanted him traveling in the pandemic. So he was going to do games from remote broadcasts and Brock Heward, our analyst went to the NFL side and then Bo told me he was going to do NFL games, but then he did get to do a college game. The first one it was KU coastal Carolina. And I remember like, well, I know one thing about coastal Carolina. I wasn't doing the game, but I was, you know, talking to him a little bit about it. And then I watched them that because it was like, there was no uh, pac 12 after dark when hardly anybody was playing. But there was on on Fox, there was a Coastal Carolina against Les Miles, Kansas team. And they kicked the crap out of Kansas. And you watched them and it was like, no, Kansas is not good at all. But it was impressive to see. And then they kept it rolling. And it's a really cool story because I think normally a school like that would not have gotten much of the spotlight. I'm not saying they got a lot of it, but they got a little bit. How much of, of that story is ba- is built around what's happening now like you know it, it is i mean I, I, I hate to use the term silver lining in, in a situation like what we're in but is just a result of the field being open with you know the pac-12 not being around and the big 10 like how much of that is just this i think there's a chunk of it i mean look the sunbelt got a lot of attention early on in the season coastal is one of the th- sunbelt schools as is uh, Louisiana, the Ragin' Cajun, sometimes called mm-hmm. ULL, and also Arkansas State. Each of them beat a Big 12 conference school. Uh, I, uh, you know, Iowa State was a team that went down. That's a good team. K-State is a pretty good team. Uh, Arkansas State got them. And so that first weekend, they got a lot of attention when they normally wouldn't have. And I think because of some of those things, you know, I, I think people were looking for stories and when you didn't have a lot, you, you basically had the big 12, you had some of the ACC play and the SEC hadn't come back yet. So I think that's why people were gravitating towards anything they can get. I mean, you know, I can't tell you, I probably watched uh, central Arkansas play a couple of games this year and I'm not sure anybody else would have been doing that in a normal year, but they played. Uh, the first perhaps game you've never heard of one Scotty Pippen, Bruce. Uh, 
Yes, I have. That's the but that was the only reason why I knew of them until this year. Well, I mean, you, you guys. I'm just saying, you guys could have done a Zoom and watched the game together. Would it, it would have been pretty <laughs> fun? I mean, that that's a story in in the COVID age. Uh, you know, it's crazy. Central Arkansas has a guy who was on my freaks list this year. It's a cornerback. He is a cornerback who's about six one, can jump jump uh, through the roof, and will probably be a top hundred pick in the draft. But you know, it's crazy because they were in the first game of the season on TV, and then. Uh, they played North Dakota State, who's an FCS powerhouse with Trey Lance, who's probably going to be a first-round pick. He's the quarterback there who put up ridiculous numbers as a true freshman. So you had this kind of program that outside of Scottie Pippen, nobody had ever paid attention to. And all of a sudden they got they got at least somewhat of a little bit of a, you know, of a of a uh, of a spotlight for them. I mean, you never know. We're we're not that far removed from the idea of you know paying attention to Boise State would have sounded insane. Like you know the idea that anybody would care about that program, and you know they they're now one that gets paid attention to. wasn't that long ago? Yeah, it was just you know again, and credit to Chris Peterson because I think they had been good before he took over, but he really elevated it. You know, as Dan Hawkins left there to go to CU, and then all of a sudden. Um, you know, it wasn't just the blue turf. There was a lot of cool things that were gone on, and obviously they produced a lot of good players. It wasn't, it wasn't not, though, the blue turf. I mean, that it was still part of it. Well, you've seen what coastal turf looks like, right? No. I'm, 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 I mean, look, I, I, it won't take you long to figure out. I don't watch a lot of college football. I have not been paying close attention. I didn't realize they were this good until I was doing the reading and, you know, reading, you know, whatever – because you were coming on the show. Huh. And so I saw that and I thought initially when I saw your rankings for this week, I was like, that's, he's making like a goof because you have space for that this year, but no. And the color of their turf. I don't know if you can, if everyone else can see it, but it's like, you are in the show. It's that color of my text block. That's what the color of the turf is. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's cool. So how do you know who's good this year? When when Indiana has played twice and you know the Pac-12 is starting this week and there's no interconference play and all like how do you know who's good? We don't. We really don't. It's the it's the it's the poorly kept secret. It's a lot of subjectivity in a sport that's dripping with sub- subjectivity normally. And so, you know, you're going to look at let's the Pac-12 is starting this weekend. They're going to play each other and that's it. There's no Oregon playing Ohio State or Oregon playing North Dakota State. There's no USC playing Alabama. Those games were supposed to happen. Michigan was supposed to play Washington. But obviously with the pandemic, that's out the window. So, you know, all you can do is win the games that you play. And you hope that if you're a team trying to get in the playoff, that you have enough wins to get in. I mean, the Pac-12 at best at best will be 7-0 and if it's a Pac-12 champ. Is that going to be enough uh, when already people are, feel like pretty comfortable in thinking the three best teams clearly are Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson in some order? So that would leave one other spot, assuming one of those schools doesn't really, really stumble. And I don't know who's going to get that spot, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be coastal. Let's put it that way. But um, so I'll give them some love in my top 10 column when it's it's some you know, it's kind of warranted. I I have to admit, and I think I speak for Brian with this. It's been a season right now for me with college football where I am, I think, to put it kindly ambivalent, just because I, I have a hard time with the idea of 
college athletes even wanting to be out there and, you know, being out there of their own volition, them being unpaid, you know, it really tests the idea of amateur and, you know, student athletes. From your perspective and what you know, how, how well informed do you think the athletes are in terms of risks that they're taking, you know, long-term prognosis or, you know, I guess what we know about, you know, potential long-term effects with COVID and like just their ability to truly make their own decisions in all of this? Well, I think they're about as well-informed probably as pretty much anybody else who's, who we see on social media. Um, you know, I'm not sure um, that's encouraging. Yeah, I don't know how, you know, I mean, that's probably the worst non-answer I could give you, but I think there is- <laughs> It's the most alarming, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think there's something out here where um, we're all in our own sort of echo chambers. And I hate to say this because God forbid there are people who- are all the way I'm about to say this, but I think if you're on Twitter a lot, which I have to be for work, which I, a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. you get this echo chamber of who you follow, who shows up in your feed. And it can be, um, it can be mind numbing. Right. And so whatever values or things you think, you know, you know, they get tested because of what's around you. And, and we're in a pandemic. Everything is evolving. I mean, I think, the the things that we may have thought eight months ago, maybe we're not so sure about, right? And so I did a story that did well, at least you know, business wise for the athletic, right after the Pac-12 made its decision, similar to what they right after the Big Ten made its decision to postpone. And I talked to a lot of people who were on the call that basically it was the ads, the the conference commissioner, the coaches, and their medical experts. And the coaches in the Pac-12 were pretty alarmed by a lot of the stuff they'd heard, especially about as it relates to to heart issue concerns relating to COVID. Also, there was testing issues out, you know, out here um, as at the time in Southern California, certainly, and in some other pockets of the Pac-12. And I think that some of those things now like there's been some pushback and there's been pushback you know the the big 12 went all in on playing in part because they had a medical expert who is from the mayo clinic it's not like it's like they found some random guy off the street i mean this is somebody who's certainly well credentialed who was very strong and outspoken about what he thought the risks were what he thought the the data was telling them on some of these things. And basically the medical experts in um, the bit with the big 12 and certainly the ACC and the SEC, I think we're giving them different, you know, different uh, rationale than what the big 10 and the SEC and big 10 and the PAC 12 were giving them. And I don't know, like, you know, the games are going on and as best we can tell, Nobody who is involved in these programs has gotten very sick, meaning has been hospitalized. Now, I don't. Here's the the thing with this. Um, Schools will not all, but some schools will release information. How many players tested positive? How many coaches tested positive? Sometimes you'll hear asymptomatic. You wouldn't you know, no one's releasing well, Johnny Smith went to the hospital, he's having respiratory issues or anything like that. 
So unless it's really anecdotal, so unless we've heard from, in a case early on, it was the mom of an Indiana football player who said her son had gone to the hospital and and she posted it on a Facebook group. But by and large, there's, I don't roughly 13,000 college football players in major college football. You would have thought you would have heard more if there was more going on. And that's not to say that I don't know what the death toll is in the United States right now. It's 225,000 or it's, it's somewhere I know over 200,000. Um, so, and as we're, you know, like what happens is you would, you would, uh, let's say you get figures from the university of Indiana or the university of Michigan. And they say that they have, uh, you know, tested X number of players and six are pos- six have been positive. And you, you know, you just tweet out what, what comes in the, in the press release and you'd get people going like, I don't understand. What's your point? Well, I'm not having a point here. I'm just saying what the school is saying, right? I'm not saying whether that's a huge number. I'm not saying the way that's, but then you'd get a lot of people going, they're 18 to 22. They're going to be fine. And you'd get that over and over again. Yeah. And I think, by and large, it sounds like that, you know, and, and what I had wondered about is the coaches, the players are, yes, 18 to 22. There's a lot of coaches who are 50 and up and some of them aren't in very good shape and some of them are 60 and up. And yet we really have not heard of any hospitalizations. Now, mm-hmm. just today, a really, uh, a really big recruit that Clemson had two years ago, Xavier Thomas. He's a defensive lineman. I think he's probably 19 or 20 years old. He had talked about his battles with COVID and said, uh, you know, he was struggling breathing for a couple of months. That's significant. That's one of the few stories I've heard about a college football player talking about that. Um, And so, you know, getting through all this is just like, I think that that has probably, you know, like go back. Obviously, you guys, you guys are very versed in basketball. Remember the night like Rudy Gobert gets it and, you know, a bunch of stuff happened. I don't know if this was the exact same night, but at one point there was a there was a I think it was a Big Ten tournament basketball game. And Fred Hoiberg was on the bench and they showed video of him. And it was like, right, he, right, he looked awful. Yeah, yeah. Hacking coughs. And it was like, Oh my God, Fred Hoiberg's going to die on national TV or, you know, from COVID, you know, or just, and then it turned out, I think it turned out he didn't have it. And, you know, I think the way we looked at the virus at that point, and again, not to diminish it at all, but I just think that, you know, when I heard Tom Hanks and his wife had it, he thought, Oh my God, they're not going to make it. And then, you know, like Rudy Gobert and I'm, I'm, Blanket on some of the other NBA players right in the beginning, but like I mean, him, Donovan best. Mitchell, yeah, yeah, these that. are the best athletes in the world, best conditioned athletes. They're also younger, um, so it, it doesn't mean that there haven't been twenty-two-year-olds who are fit who have had really bad times with this. But I think you're tr- you're kind of balancing that. So to you know, when you say, do the players know? I think the players know, but remember, the players also know that there's a lot of risks playing football now they've heard the stories about cte and they've heard some of those things i mean you know we were all 20 uh once and there's a lot of stuff we did that we're like you know you take your chances with it and i think there's a lot of people not just college football players 
who feel that way. So, you know, it's ultimately you, you keep your fingers crossed that everything stays on track, but it's, it's just kind of like, you're almost shrug the shrug your shoulders at a lot of this. Um, last thing is about, about this. And before we, we get into some of the stuff with the book, do you, how do you think people are going to look back on this season, whether it's, you know, trying to, you know, the, 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 the disparate amount of games or, um, you know, Trevor Lawrence, you know, he, he's now out for however long, I guess, you know, that, that lasts. And, you know, when it's all said and done, I guess they're going to, they're going to be bowl games and they'll crown a national champion. And so what, what when we look back at the season in five years, 10 years, what do you, what are we going to think about? Well, hopefully there will be no, you know, tragic moment or anything that kind of, causes because there's going to be there's going to be games postponed there's already been games canceled in the big mm-hmm. 10 with wisconsin um you know there was there were some rocky moments in the mlb season right with the cardinals and the marlins and certainly the justin turner thing with the dodgers at the end was was uh pretty wild i i think that you know to me a lot of people was like well you're gonna have maybe a maybe a seven and O team and a 10 and O team and a playoff and you know how fair is this going to be that this and, and i think and i'm not saying this is an asterisk asterisk season but there is no unlike the nfl unlike the nba or unlike the wnba or unlike the nhl there is no bubble in college football and there's also 100 person rosters you're on college campuses um, only recently with a couple of the leagues have you gotten daily testing the sun belt i think is testing once a week you know, wow. so, you know, that's, there's a lot of roll of the dice going on here. And my case, my, my point on some of this is, you know, I talked to an AD at a school that had a big win early in the season. And I just asked him, we were just having a conversation really. And one of the things that I took away from it was if your school normally has a big win, normally the players go out and they get together with their buddies or they go to a bar, they go to a frat party, whatever they do but that's the unwind. Now you can't do that because if you do, then you're risk bringing it back into what they're trying to consider is their own bubble. It's not a bubble, but this is as close as they can get to it. And so I think for the players and the teams that manage it the best, it's not to say that like, you know, Boston college, you know, sticks out to me as a school that almost never has had positives. I mean, their numbers are, are, have been pretty remarkable. Um, hopefully I didn't just jinx them, but right. you know, it's been pretty remarkable and they've had a nice year, but you know, there's other teams who are going to have like Clemson's had a ton of positives before Trevor Lawrence. And so when I say, how do they manage it or whatever, but I think there's so many challenges that are going to come with this season because of everything going on around much less you didn't have an off season, what to speak of. I think that whoever does, you know, make it to the, to the title game and win it. I think there's going to be a unique, um, a unique aspect of it. And I don't think there'd be like any asterisk to it. I just think it'd be something that's, you know, this is, we're in 2020. It's a really effed up year and just however it's going to be like uh, one thing that's come that I feel like I've heard a bunch of times people have said, and I think I've heard this a bunch because it's like, I've written books. It's like when they write the book about 2020, I'm like, is going to want to read that. I don't, you know, I don't want to get it. I, <laughs> have you seen, have you seen the, uh, the trailer for the, the new Michael Bay movie that was sort of cut, I think during Corona and it's, it's the whole yes, premise is, you know, the virus mutates and it's year four 
of full lockdown. I saw the first 30 seconds of that. I was like, nope, not watching that. Yeah. You know, I, I lived, as you guys know, like we all had ESPN magazine roots at some point and I lived in New York during nine 11. And so I remember that day very vividly. And for a while I would watch almost anything that was about, um, just kind of about that day. And now that's a long time ago, but, but, this part, I'm like, you know, I don't even like, you know, I didn't like reading about it too much no. just because it was just exhausting. Right. And so the whole year has been exhausting. And, and I'm thankful that college football is back. And I had a football coach say something, which I, I really don't think was profound when he didn't think about it at the time. But he said, you know, there's a big difference between being back and being back to normal. And I don't know when we're back to normal, but, you know, like, I mean, I know when I go into Fox, you know, we have our, I'm in the studio this year. And so we get drug tests and drug tests. We get, we get tested. <laughs> That's a scoop. Would be, hey, now. <laughs> um, but I mean, let's be honest. Could you blame anyone? No. No, not right now. No. Um, you know, when <laughs> they've, I got, they've got it. They've got it. They've got to at least give you guys some allowances if you're drug testing. Like, okay, these couple drugs, it's all right, but they, like, they should hand I you mean, guys edibles on the way into the studio. It's, it's the way things are. Can you say right anything now. on this show right now? Yes. <laughs> okay. So yeah. we're going to go back to ESPN Magazine for a minute here. So, Please. so uh, when I started at ESPN, it was right. It was basically. I was like, what was became the first hire? What became ESPN.com? So it was 1994. I actually did get drug tested to get hired there. I had to get drug tested. Really? Yeah. I worked in Bristol. I got drug tested. Well, anyway, um, probably a month or two after the magazine launched, I transitioned down from Bristol to New York. And when I was in high school, I smoked weed, but like the drugs that were happening in our office were like, that was a different deal for me. Now I, I didn't partake in that stuff. But it was it was way way different, and um, so it like we would have these you know those next parties, and I just remember it was like some of the people I was friends with were like whoa they were way into it, and that kind of blew my mind because I was just like it was just a, it was just a, a different scene than I was used to. Put so. the E in, in entertainment. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was the E, yes. There was definitely well, one, I won't say who it is, but one of our writers. <laughs> Please don't. As my, as <laughs> when we have, said you could don't. say anything, we probably yeah. shouldn't I say mean, anything. I mean, there is probably some border to I mean, we, I mean I'm going to be honest. This is actually news to me because I didn't you know, know we about were, this. We were working on the West Coast, you know, and I mean, we weren't in the offices maybe four times. I. This is brand new. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was funny. So I, my first year there, I lived in, um, I lived halfway in between Bristol and, and New York because I was going back and forth. And so we would play basketball at Chelsea Piers. And one night I remember like, I got dropped back off at the magazine office on, on whatever, 19 East 34th Street. And I was waiting for like a car service to take me back to Connecticut. And I was over where my space was, which was kind of in front of that big scoreboard. And one of our writers, who was a big, big partaker, um, came into the office not knowing that anybody else was in there. And there was somebody else in the office who I think would supply him with some of his party favors. And 
I like heard the ruckus and all of a sudden it was like being in like one of those old cartoon skits where like the cartoon character just goes into the room and just like stuff is flying <laughs> out. He was like ransacking this. And I was like, what's going on? And so I'll leave it there. But there was a lot of, it was a lot of crazy stuff that went on there. Jeez, like when we showed up, it was just like, you know, dudes playing ping pong. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I think the, <laughs> the office was pretty cool, but like, I guess I good stuff. The first couple of years was way different than, than probably like after maybe the fourth or fifth year. Yeah, we were just on the West Coast writing jokes for the front of the book. <laughs> we, we had the yeah. occasional profile of a pro bass fisherman or, or the, uh, the bull riding circuit. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, Bruce, I, I assume like, you know, you've started another book tour and like it's pretty standard. Like you have to go through the slog of telling uh, the drug stories uh, before they let you talk about the book. So yes. um, I it's. One of the and the book is uh, it's flip the script. It's, it's with Ed Orgeron, lessons learned on the road to a championship, and the one of the things I think is is kind of cool about it. You wrote Meat Market, which is all about recruiting, and Orgeron, like he's the the thing that you knew about him, like when he came to USC was recruiting. Um, what what was that world like, like when Ed was in it, like, and what made him so good at it? So. Um, he learned under Jimmy Johnson when Jimmy Johnson was at University of Miami. So that was the, that was the glory days of, of the hurricanes. I mean, he, he coached Cortez Kennedy and Russell Maryland and later Warren Sapp and he coached the rock, by the way, the rock wrote the forward of the book. So that was a good get. I'm not going to get That's why his name is on the, on the, on the cover and not mine, by the way, I'm on the inside cover. <laughs> Smart play. I mean, no yeah, offense. Rock Don't take this the wrong way, but that's, it's a good call. So, so uh, he has, he learned how to evaluate under Jimmy Johnson, which is Jimmy Johnson, as most people know in football is like, was one of the best evaluators. It, he, it carried over obviously from college to the NFL with the Cowboys. And he also spent time under Pete Carroll. He and Pete Carroll really helped build USC into a powerhouse. And so he felt a couple of things. He felt very strong in his ability to evaluate players. A lot of people in recruiting wait to see who else offers somebody. Mm -hmm. He wants to be the first one in the boat, as he would put it, because then he felt like that kid would be loyal to him because, hey, I was the first one who believed in you. And kids, when they're getting pitched from everywhere and people are coming at him at every turn, he felt like that gave him an edge. Uh, the other thing that was big with him which I didn't know going in. So I, I, when I worked on Meat Market, I knew him, but I didn't know exactly what made him tick. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was I knew he had, when he was at Miami, he lost his job because he, his partying got way out of control. And yeah. he is, now he's 20 years sober, but he'd been in recovery. He's, he's in recovery, but he'd gone, you know, battled it for a while, head on, you know, been, not false starts, but it, you know, it's, there was, there was Relapse a lot of part of yeah. recovery. Yeah. It was a hard time for him. And so what I realized, and we talked about this a lot in meat market was, um, he basically, he basically, because he was such an adrenaline rush guy, um, he loved the chase and the chase when he's out for whatever the next big high or whatever you want to say about his partying, um, and that adrenaline rush is basically channeled into now 
to, you know, he's a relationship guy and he's a people guy, but I think a big part of that was also, um, he channeled that, that thing and that drive into recruiting. And he is obsessed about recruiting in ways that I don't think there's any other head coach who's like that. Now there's some, you know, Nick Saban's a great recruiting head coach. Bobby Bowden was a great closer. Urban Myers regarded as it, but they, I don't think they worshiped it the way this guy does. Right. Because at the core, some of those other guys have their guys who handle their database and he's hands on, like this is his thing. And so he loves the high school coaches. He loves to meet like, you know, the aunt, the grandmother, the whoever is in the picture. And so that part of it, I think, was such a big deal to him. So you have the guy who's really confident in his ability to evaluate when, quite honestly, I don't think a lot of coaches are that confident about it um, because it's 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 different. Like one of the things we got into in Meat Market at the beginning was just how different the evaluation aspect is compared to what it is in college basketball, college basketball, all the, most of the best players get together at some of these sneaker camps or whatnot. And they basically play the sport they're playing in college football. Even if you go to a combine, there's no pads. It's not, it's just way different. Also like in college basketball, like I remember back when I covered college basketball, Tracy McGrady blew up at a sneaker camp. Mm -hmm. It was from, uh, somewhere in no Auburndale, Florida, or somewhere in Florida before he went to Mount Zion, but he just blew up there. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, a couple of years later, he's in the NBA in college football. It's not that way. I mean, yes, you have guys like Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, but for the most part, like the guy who is six, four two thirty, he may grow to be six four two seventy, right? You know, bodies need to develop. They're in different systems. So there's a lot of projecting. And there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of five stars and four stars who don't pan out. There's a lot of two and two and zero stars who end up being NFL stars, right? So I think there's a lot of that subjective nature. So just because he was so, so passionate about it, um, you know, like Meat Market wasn't initially going to be a book. It was supposed to be a magazine article. And I went down to, to Oxford, Mississippi for three days and I came back. And within 20 minutes of being down, I was like, man, I got a great story. And I went home and I don't know if you guys remember Neil Fine. Yeah, sure. Was, you know, was like the top of the editing food chain for, for the college football side. And I told him what I had and he said, you have a book. And I was like, I thought about it, but I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to move to Mississippi to write this book. I'm not ready for that. But, you know, it was a big change in my life. But so from there, it really you know, you started to see a path into a, into a different world that quite honestly, even though I covered college football, you know, nobody's like behind the curtain and a fly on the wall the way I got to be for two years. So that really was like kind of career changing for me. It's interesting when, when you mention the, the relationships that Ed Odron looks to build during recruiting and then, you know, that personal connection. I thought it was interesting how you pointed out um, in the book that after um, he got fired by Ole Miss. One of the conclusions that he reached was that he needed to yell less at his players, cuss them out less. That I guess temperamentally he wasn't doing the things that he needed to do to reach a next level in coaching. I, I think that's just really interesting, just in the sense that you you have the ability, if you really want to, to be pretty authoritarian as a college football coach. I mean, you are 
way more powerful than the players themselves. Mm -hmm. How did he end up reaching that conclusion? I think some of what really, and this is my analysis, not, you know, it's something we talked about, but I really think because having covered the sport for 20 plus years, the most stubborn individuals I've ever met, aside from my six-year-old, are football <laughs> coaches, right? Like Mike Leach is the most stubborn man alive, is, you know, in my eye. Um, and a lot of these guys are really smart, but because they have gotten so used to doing things a certain way, and remember, they're not working like 40-hour weeks. I mean, this is basically all they do and all their personas built around it. So they're really stubborn and they don't change much if they do. And what was fascinating to me with Ogeron was, and again, I think I attribute a lot of this to what I think has been his being forced or being willing to be forced to look internal and examine himself in a really critical light because he's battling addiction. And that is taking him in a place where most football coaches are not comfortable going. And I'm not saying he's necessarily comfortable going, but he, he, he gets it right. So, um, so with that as a, with that as kind of a, the core to him, I think like one thing I really learned on flip the script that I didn't really think about or didn't know was there'd be a lot of stuff that happened in the last few years at LSU where he would say like, whatever he is, 58, 59 years old now, like you don't shut off who you are, especially who you are and who's in your DNA. Um, you just learn to deal with it better, hopefully. And, and some people can't, right? And some people are just, you know, they can't get out of their own way. But in his case, he's learned to deal with it better because he's aware of it. And so he would say to me, and, and this is, there's a couple of examples, but this is the one that comes to mind directly. So they beat Alabama last year. And it's the first time in like a decade where LSU's beaten Alabama. They go into Tuscaloosa, Joe Burrow lights them up. They win the game. And that was obviously a huge moment for LSU. It was, you know, honestly, at that point, I was like, I got a book because I had already had something in mind. I was like, once they won that game, I'm like, this book is made. But what happened was in the post-game locker room celebration, one of his players had his camera phone, had his cell phone out and took a video of it and posted something on Instagram. And it wasn't like the most horrific stuff, but it was Ogeron. Basically there was some, some, you know, rough language. And basically I think it was like, you know, kind of roll tide FU kind of stuff. And so when I asked him about it, he said, that the player apologized and came up and he said, you know, the old me being the old him that used to coach at Ole Miss probably would have turned it into a two day story because he would, I would have been pissed off that I was disrespected or whatever and taken it personal and made it worse. When in reality I thought about, it, I was like, if this was my son, he made a really stupid decision, not a, not a horrific decision. It's not like it was like he, this player, was drinking. It was, he broke the code. He did, you know, you just, he, he did the wrong thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But it was just bad judgment. But he said, if my son did that. I'd be like, all right, don't do it again. You know, you did something wrong. You know, I still love you. Let's move on. And he realized that not only by doing it this way, the rest of the team sees, cause this was, this wasn't a great player, but it was not, a, it was a starter. It was like a pretty good player. And, um, that they saw how he supported this guy when he knew he screwed up. 
but also his thought process was if I did it the other way, this turns into a two day story as opposed to now it's over in two hours and me having it as a two day story in the backdrop where I have to talk about it and then it gets asked about players and whatever. It's a distraction and that doesn't do us any good. And so what I think, you know, I, I kind of realize is this is the guy who has the same impulses, the same instincts, but has just now has the discipline and the wherewithal and the understanding to go, all right, I, I, I get it. That's what I want to do. I can't do it. And I don't know how many football coaches are either savvy enough or self-aware enough or disciplined enough to get out of their own way and stuff like that. You don't, you don't dwell. Um, I, I don't think on that. Yeah. You because know, obviously, you know, there, there, there are two stints at, at SC and you know, you go through the, the stuff with Pete and what he learned from, from Pete Carroll and what that era taught him. And I, I think it's interesting that he, you know, he was sort of Pete's bad cop and played bad cop at, at, at Ole Miss and learned from that. It seems like that was sort of my reading of it. But the the section when you get when he gets back to SC and he takes over for for Lane Kiffin and he has that incredible run at the end of of that year. It, you know, a lot of people kind of look at it and say, well, well you know, it, that was a long time ago. US, USC is still kind of in that. Mm-hmm. that place you know they you know they still have a coach from that coaching tree no longer an ad from inside the you know inside the house so to speak but you know they still have the coach there um that episode where pat hayden seems you know ed says he's going to hire him and then they lose to ucla and he doesn't what did that say about both coach o and where he was and who he was at that point but about USC's athletic department, about where they were at that point. I think it says, you know, we all live out, you know, you know, no LA. I think it just says that this was a very dysfunctional place for a long time that quite honestly succeeded in spite of itself. Like when I moved out here in 2003, they were just getting really good and they were, they were fun. You know, Pete was a superstar you know, they had exciting players. I mean, it it had- cannot be overstated how big of stars Matt Leinert and Reggie Bush were. I mean, they were like A-list movie stars. It's yeah. not an exaggeration. Yeah. I mean, it, they were fun to be around. Like, they, there was no team that's like this, right, in college football. Um, and Pete is super charismatic. Pete fit here in a, you know, like, I'm blanking on the writer's name. It was a... I want to say it's like J.R. Tolkien, but it's not. But there's a really good magazine writer who did the Agassiz book. And I it's been a while. But um, anyway, he did a magazine story on Pete, and it was really fantastic. Like, I don't have that club in my bag. Like, this guy really did an amazing job of showing how competitive Pete was and just kind of Pete's persona. Or Moringer. Or Thanks. Moringer. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a brilliant writer. I don't know him at all, but I was just like, he's a very away. good writer. Yeah. Blown away by what he did. And, um, because it was Pete and the way he captured it and the way he, he delivered it. And so, um, that was USC and it was just like, but at the same time you had Mike Garrett as the AD and Mike Garrett, he was a great player. He won a Heisman, but like he was not a great AD and that ended up blowing up in their face when the sanctions hit because of how he handled it. And then they went for somebody who 
was more country clubbish who had big USC ties and had a fancy pedigree and grew up there. And that was Pat Hayden and Pat's nice or can be really nice, but it was, he's, he's brilliant. I mean, he, he is a brilliant guy in terms of just yeah, pure intelligence. He's a road scholar. Yeah. But he was not, he was not an AD like, and then they went and they doubled down and they hired somebody who was a better player, but less of a fit. And he was even worse. And that was Lynn Swan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there used to be an expression that you would hear a lot when I first moved out there and it would happen around the football program where you'd see like really cool. This was obviously pre Twitter, but it'd be these digital moments where it'd be like, Will Ferrell shows up at practice or Snoop Dogg is there, or there's a really cool video like of late Bill Withers singing, you know, like doing a practical joke and then singing in the team room. And it would be like only at USC, they would say. And it's true because I can't imagine these things, the star power being pulled off like that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, then all of a sudden they would do these things. And then it happened with when Lane got there Lane, as the head coach, Lane did a bunch of knucklehead stuff that kept on blowing up in his face. It was like, he was constantly stepping on the loose floorboard and was getting, you know, slammed <laughs> in the face. And, but they were, you know, like only at USC, like these things can only happen at USC. And it was kind of like, if I was an alum and I'm friends with a lot of USC. I am an alum. Yeah. And it's just like, you're like, you don't feel bad for them because, you know, it's USC and you have, you know, like there's a lot of great things about it, but you're like, man, this must be really frustrating because you can't get out of your own way. And that's USC. And so um, what's funny, not funny, funny, haha, but what's, what's interesting to me about the USC Ogeron thing is Ogeron loves USC like there's a old late you know since past coach Marv Gu who was like this revered tough guy who embraced all the stuff about USC and was worshipped and he he really made a big impact on Ed so Ed got USC like he revered it like you know like in a everything from Ronnie Lott, Marcus Allen, like he's in with those guys, Anthony Munoz, he gets it right. Like the way John Papadakis feels it, Ed Ogeron kind of feels that. And he was a big part of turning them into a powerhouse with Pete. And, you know, I think he was like living a dream when he became the interim and they beat Stanford on a, you know, a top five Stanford team. Right. They had, when they had like only one sub they could use on their, on their, uh, um, you know, on their, on their basically defense. That, right, because all the same, the, the scholarship losses and they, yeah. they, they were down on players. Yeah. So I think then to get the rug pulled out from under him, I mean, that hurt him deeply, you know, because he grew up worshiping LSU, but I think it's somewhere along the way, USC really turned his head in a big way. And I think it, probably stung even more because Pat Hayden, not saying it directly this much, but was like, you don't belong in that big chair. Yep. You're just not, mm-hmm. it's, it's whatever the Cinderella story, but Cinderella can't be back there. You just, that's not your place. And I think that is a really, really um, tough pill for him to swallow. And even like, you know, one of his closest friends is a guy named Brian Kennedy, who the practice field mm-hmm. is named after Big Booster. He's one of the guys who's, you know, has a big uh, billboard business out here. And 
um, Brian hasn't since they, you know, basically hired Steve Sarkeesian instead of Ogeron, Brian Kennedy's completely cut them cut off from the program. So it's crazy. It's just a really, you know, it, it worked out for Ed and we'll see, you know, it's not like, um, you know, USC has kind of been still kind of. I, I was going to say like Ed Orgeron, I'm sure he didn't realize it in the moment. He was very open about how this was a bitter, disappointing pill for him to swallow. He really dodged a bullet. I mean, in terms of U- USC is, you know, forget just football. They've been a mess for a while. I mean, with with issues that are much, much more important away from the field. And obviously, Ed Orgeron could have been this coach that galvanized the program and, you know, single-handedly led them through this different transition period. But there was a ton of dysfunction that, could have just swallowed him up as much as, you know, it swallowed up everybody else. And, you know, regardless of what you think of Clay Heldon, for example, as a coach, it's clear he has not been able to conquer it, no matter how good you think he is, or I guess how bad you think he is. And this could have ended up something that ultimately derailed Ed Orgeron as disappointing as you he fail, found You fail moment. once, it'll miss. It's okay. The second time, but if you fail twice... At major programs, now like I never really thought about it until we, I was thinking about talking with you tonight. But I mean, he really may have dodged a bullet. Maybe. I mean, look, I, the 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 thing that's different is eventually the sanctions part eased up. The like, on one hand, there's that, and there's certainly the dysfunction of the of the president, the AD. I mm-hmm. mean, you guys know, and I, I just as Andy, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about like beyond the, the, just the athletic issues, you know, <laughs> massive problems at USC. It's like scandal upon scandal. Um, on the flip side of it, you're taking over the LSU job and Nick Saban is the greatest coach in college football history. And he's in your division. Um, you know, like that, whereas the PAC 12 is there for the taking. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, you know, he's, he really has deep roots in, you know, uh, West Coast high school football and everything like that. I don't know. I'd be curious what what it would have been because if you had told me where would he have had a better chance to win a national title of the two, I would have said USC because there's no Nick Saban. There's like you could dominate right twelve West Coast football. It's harder to do that in the place he was at, starting from where he was starting. You know, but college football to me is is one of the. It happens in the pros, but I think less so. But college football in particular is very much built around. Okay, if you don't win, like this guy's coaching for his job today. If you don't beat Stanford today, you're going to be fired. If you don't beat UCLA, you're going to be fired. Which is cosmically just a cosmically stupid way to handle things. But that's a separate discussion. Pat Hayden clearly didn't want Ed Orgeron to be the head coach at USC. If he beats UCLA, the He's politics tough. of it maybe make it so it's impossible not to hire him. But now you're the head coach for a guy who really ultimately doesn't want you to be the head coach. I, I just and, and, and to sort of further what Andy was saying, like I wonder, like what that was going to be my question, like how does that play out? Because he, if you don't have the buy-in from the AD and the AD thinks that you he has to hire you because he's just got to. That that wouldn't have been a good situation. It seems like, right? And that's that's similar to what he had at, at uh, Ole Miss. He had an AD and Pete Boone, who was a banker, who 
who didn't want him as the head coach. And David Cutcliffe, who was the coach before Ogeron at Ole Miss, and Houston Nutt, who was the coach after him, the three of them have nothing in common other than they're both white males. Other than this, they each don't like Pete Boone, the AD, or trust him. And Ed was super paranoid when I was there, not because of me, but because of the AD. He did just, he did not trust him at all. And, you know, I'm not saying Pete Boone is similar to Pat Hayden in that regard, but I think they'll not, if you're AD and you know they don't want you, that is a bad place. And I don't know if, I'm sure he was more equipped to handle that because um, I think he was more connected to the big money people. Like one of USC's big boosters was Wayne Hughes from public storage. And yeah. I think, you know, by all accounts, Ed had a strong relationship with him. I know he had a strong relationship with Brian Kennedy and still does. Am, so, I, am I correct? That that guy you just named, Wayne Hughes, he he was a big reason that uh, Lynn Swan got hired, correct? Correct, or he, yeah. And they went to college together. Yeah, excellent yeah. judgment that guy clearly has. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, there are, you know, I think Ogeron was more connected to the money people at USC in terms of not all of them, but like he knew who they were because he had been part of the program for a long time when Pete got it rolling. And even before that, he was he was there when um, uh, Paul Hackett was the head coach. So he had time. Whereas at Ole Miss, he just was like such an outsider to them, you know. And I think there was a lot of people at Ole Miss who kind of looked down their nose at him because he was like, "That's so crazy to think about." Because you know, you think, "Oh, he's he's from Louisiana. He talks funny, like all these other like." Because the 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 popular conception, at least, is like part of the reason he didn't you know, fit in here. Like you talk about the, the, the Pat, you know, the Pat Hayden, the country club thing and all that is the USC country club. You can't have a guy who talks like that and looks like that as the head coach at USC. You can't have a coach who sounds like sling blade coaching USC. I mean, like that, that was the perception. Yeah. I mean, but I, I mean, at the end of the day, and I don't know how this fits, but at the end of the day, I'm not sure how many of the people in that world um, you know, like they're, I think, are they comfortable with it at arm's length? I mean, are they going to hang out with a lot of the players who come from really different worlds than they come from? I, you know, I guess the answer is like, it's, it, you know, if it, it has to work because if it doesn't, they're going to turn on it even faster. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it gets to that ultimate question. If Ed Orgeron stays at USC, is he the Ed Orgeron who wins a national championship at LSU? And I, I don't, there's no way to know, you know, but that, I mean, it's one of those fascinating questions about sports generally. Like I asked Kobe this question once, like if you, if you don't play the Jedi, if Jerry West doesn't play the Jedi mind tricks on the, on the, on the New Jersey nets and Calipari doesn't get cold feet and he drafts you, do you win multiple titles as the whatever pick of, of the, I keep calling him so good at now, calling him the Brooklyn Nets, of the New Jersey Nets. Nets. And he says, of course. And, you know, and I, I, I didn't expect a different answer, but obviously, the, you know, I, no, you probably don't. People like that think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kevin Sumlin had a really good line once. He was like, every coach thinks that fucked up place, I can fix it. Yes. And 
and then you got a bunch of gray hairs in your beard and you're like i now i get it you know like it, at some point um if you guys cross paths with rick neuheisel there, there's some great ucla stories like they're not even i don't even know if they're like great UCLA, but they're like telling ucla stories where it's like the level of of inane dysfunction that gets in the way of having an you know doesn't mean you can't win there but just like you know i remember there was a story he told and i can't tell it as well as he can i can't even tell it well right now but it's like about he's having some nfl personnel people in where they're going to help ucla for something maybe in a value i don't remember what it was but it turns out all these guys got huge parking tickets and he was like wait a minute like we want them to be here they're helping us and it's just like the people are like, we don't care. This is, you're not allowed to do this. And then at most other places that doesn't happen. And it's just like the level of this kind of stuff at some of these places, you know, can, you know, when you hear the, uh, like the local knowledge of, you know, literally using like a golf term or something. Um, I think that's the stuff that gets lost. Right. And I think those are the things that, that, you don't know until you're in the middle of it why you know why does this program not constantly not win right or what's the what's the hold up there's something you just don't know and then you figure it out once you're in the middle of it right like it's just there's a lot of stuff that's like that in college athletics i'm sure there is in other things too but i guess it comes back to the people who are like different they don't they're just different and they don't process the same way they don't think of things the same way and they're just so confident in what they're going to do that you know they're going to bet on themselves so what's the difference though between the guys because if they all make that bet what's the difference between the guys who where it pays off and it you know orgeron i don't know whether he bet on himself or was put in a position where he had to or somebody ended up betting whatever the situation but what's the what's the difference between the guys if they all believe it between the guys who are correct and the guys who aren't you know, I think it's the ones who have enough self-awareness to figure out what they can manage and what they what they need a little help with and how they how they handle their own their own strengths and weaknesses. Because as great a a athlete as Kobe Bryant, it wasn't like he was, um, you know, the best at every aspect of it. Right? He was like you can't do everything by yourself. You can will it into other people as much as you can. But I think there's something to be said for, you know, what can you, what can you trust? What can you get people to believe in? Right. And ultimately, you know, like to circle back with, with Ogeron's evolution, what I thought was telling to me was he would go through these things and it'd be like, I, he, it took him a while to, to trust and believe that he had everything in place for the way it could, could, he needed it to be, as opposed to like every team is different, especially in college athletics. You're dealing with 18, 19, 20 year olds. Even if you have a bunch of the same guys, the balance is different. The roles are different. What you can say to the team, you could say something one way in one year. And then if you try to say it the exact same way, the next year, you might lose the team. And I think it's the people who have, I don't know if it's the internal monologue to know, but I just think they're, they're more in, uh, in tune and they see things that none of us really see. Right. Like, I mean, I just think some people are like gifted with a certain kind of, 
um, you know, viewpoint. Cause like, I'm trying to remember like, like, um, there was a, uh, there was a player the Nets had, oh, I know who it was like, I'm a Nets fan. So when you were talking about that, I remember, right. but they, you remember Gerald green? Yeah, sure. Gerald green had like, must've had like a 49 inch vertical jump or whatever. And like occasionally he would do some remarkable stuff, but he was a really ordinary basketball player other than the fact that, you know, he would, could hit his head on the, on the top of the backboard. He did the cupcake dunk in the dunk contest. Yeah, it was like Gerald Green, Michael Wilson. There were like a handful of guys like that that were just known for that. I mean, but at the same time, it was like there are other guys who are way better basketball players than them. You know, and you just think, okay, you just have this great skill. But it's like, ultimately, it's like, you know, the guy who's maybe the, you know, Magic Johnson wasn't the world's best athlete. He was just the best basketball player because he saw things differently. You know, it's rare that the guy who's like the, you know, the Usain Bolt athletically happens to be the best at, you know, like at, at basketball or whatever. Um, and I just think it's, it's more mental and more visual. And I think that's where, you know, the Nick Sabans are different. I think that's just where the top guys are different because look, sometimes they gotta be assholes because that's what it takes. Right. We saw all that in the Jordan documentary, Yeah, you know, so it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's rare to find the guy who's the super nice guy who's also like the best at what they do. Okay. Speaking of that, and that's the last question that's I have great, for you. They, man, you set that up well. You you teed this up perfectly. Um, Clay Helton, who is maybe nice the night the yeah. nicest college coach, college football coach I've ever been around. I think he care like sincerely cares about yeah. his athletes in ways that I have rarely have ever seen among other college coaches quite possibly to his own detriment. How do you think he's being evaluated in this type of bizarre year, especially, you know, in light of the fact that Mike Bone opted to keep him? And I mean, there, there was a very controversial, unpopular move. Well, it would have cost like $45 million for them to unpool <laughs> all of that. Yeah. To get rid of him, bring in a new coaching staff. I'm not sure. Also, if you're going to do that, do you have a slam dunk guy? I don't, my impression was, I didn't think Carol Folt wanted to hire Urban Meyer. No. I don't mm -hmm. think she wants to hire James Franklin. And after that, I don't know who you look at and go, oh, that guy's going to come in here and do great. Right. I mean, it's, the expectations are sky high. And so what I think they've done with Clay is I think the new leadership with Bone and, and uh, Brandon Sosna, who's his right hand man has really worked hard to give him a lot of pieces around him. I think they helped him uh, help, you know, really supportive in how he put together a staff, which I think he made some really good hires. I like the Todd Orlando hire um, and some of the guys he brought with him. Um, recruiting has gone, has been splashier. And I think they've ramped up the recruiting uh, office budget, everything that, you know, to match with some of what, at least try to get in the same same uh, stratosphere as some of the other schools who are just going ballistic and recruiting. So I think those are big. And the question, though, ultimately is like, you know, like I think Clay is an adult, which is what USC kind of needed coming out of all the dysfunction with Lane and the time Ed was there, then Ed leaves and then Sark comes in and that was a disaster. So I think they needed like an adult in the room and Clay is an adult. I mean, he's a, 
he's a, I mean, there's no phony. He's a really nice oh. man, you know? And the question is, um, how, like, how good can they get under him? You know, like, cause they're, I think they're probably the most talented team in the PAC 12 right now, especially with the guys that have opted out at Oregon, right? Panay Sewell's not there. I forgot. Um, yeah. Javon Holland, who's a great defensive back. He's gone. They just lost some really good players. And so this is, you don't have to play Alabama in the opener. Like if they had played Alabama, they were looking at maybe a seven and one start. The question was how bad was the one going to be? Like, were they going to get blown out of the building or were they going to be competitive now? Um, you know, if they beat ASU, I don't think they're going to have to play a ranked team the rest of the regular season. And they have a really good quarterback in Keaton Slovis who yeah. was on their lap, but he's good. And he was a three-star guy who looks like way better than that. He's really yeah. good. Yeah. And so, I mean, if Clay manages this well and there's no clunkers or no, you know, really see performances on a Saturday, then he may, you know, he may be hard to get out of there. And I, I think the fan base, you know, they're not accepting of him at all. They don't want him as the head coach. But what do you do if you're them? Yeah, and he doesn't even talk funny. Like, you know, <laughs> this it really emphasizes a snobbery. Um, it, it's it's a fascinating like the, the place is just like and the culture around it is is just amazing like is, is it's i went to vanderbilt and you talk about james franklin like he was the most successful coach we've ever had yeah. there by a million but like it feels to me like what vanderbilt would have been if like we were actually good at football that's what usc is out here it's just it, it's it's fascinating to watch um the book is is great it's uh, uh flip the script lessons learned on a road to, uh, on the road to a championship uh bruce feldman with ed orgeron and the rock um, I was a little disappointed. It says Dwayne Johnson, though. It doesn't just say The Rock. Yeah, he um, I know he doesn't do that anymore. But so, um, oh, also Bruce, really quick, um, because yeah, you're with the Athletic, also uh, Fox Sports. But the mm -hmm. Athletic, your bio does not include flip the script. You need to update this. I know it doesn't. I'm not really great at, at technology, and I probably need to hustle on that. Um. Yeah, well, if it makes you feel better, mine includes a couple jobs that I'm pretty sure I don't currently have. So, <laughs> at least <laughs> you're forgetting great. a book we, you wrote. I'm time currently, we all need to update our athletic yeah, bios. Let's, let's, let's yeah, take care well, of that. That is good to know. I will actually reach out to our PR person. I, you know what I would love to do is the last time I was on the road was at the NFL Combine, and they had an off-site for the athletic. And, I don't know, I was probably going on like four hours sleep, and – they took headshots there and the headshot was really small, like a, um, like on the screen, it's tiny. So I didn't even look at it. And then somebody had me do an interview and they screenshot, they, they use that on TV or on it. And I was like, Whoa, that's what it's like, you know, seeing HD TV or yourself. I'm like, I hate that photo. I got, <laughs> yeah, I've been there. Yeah, HD is not good for it. It's a terrible thing for it. We yeah. all need that civil shepherd moonlighting kind of fuzzy glow yeah. thing. It's the way I would describe it is it's like, you know, the way you feel when you go out at night and then all of a sudden after you've had five beers and you walk into the bathroom and you look in the mirror and I'm like, oof, I don't know why anybody's talking to me. <laughs> or if you've had six beers, you're like, I know why everybody's talking to me. <laughs> That's the six beer. All of a sudden you're like, I look good. Yeah, you don't know. You look like you don't quite know why you're smiling. Yeah. 
I, I just remember looking in the mirror. I'm like, man, I've aged a lot. <laughs> in that bright bathroom with all the uh it's a mess all over the place so. <laughs> uh, we really appreciate the time man thank you this was fun and well, thank you guys best of luck with the book with the rest of the season hopefully just everything goes off without a hitch in, in this insanity that we're living in now but again flip the script you can find it on amazon anywhere you get books um really appreciate it man thank you very much thank you and ask your old espn magazine people who those people were yeah i gotta have, make send off a couple of yeah, emails. yeah <laughs> there's, we're, there's, we're there's no question with some of these people we may need to ask uh, there, no. i would say there would be a good there would be a good book made if the magazine lasted longer on like some of the crazy stuff that happened there it's a shame it was a good magazine too it was a good magazine um no show tomorrow. Uh, we're taking the election night off. We're not going to pretend like anybody's interested in talking to us for an hour at 10 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, we've got bigger things to do. Uh, Wednesday night, though, Anthony Slater from The Athletic will talk some basketball, get uh, get a look at the offseason. That's coming up on Wednesday. Uh, again, thanks again to Bruce, and we'll see everybody Wednesday night. Go out and vote if you haven't done it already. Thank you, Nidalan. Thank you, guys. Thank you.